and welcome to another episode of Doom to Bloom podcast. Today we have a special guest, Nick, who is going to talk to us about his experiences as a police officer, which led to a diagnosis of PTSD and how he unconventionally healed that. Nick. Hello. Thank you so much for being a guest. And I kind of said this to you off air, but I'm really excited for this episode because it's something totally different than what is typically talked about. So thank you again for being a guest. Great. Thank you very much for having me and giving me this time and place to share my story. Totally. And just before we start, Nick, I always like to ask my guest where they're logging in from. Sure. I am in Canada as well. I'm in Sylvan Lake, Alberta. So right in between Calgary and Edmonton in Alberta. Oh, cool. I didn't realize that you were a Canadian as well. Yep. Yep. Born Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I find that there's a lot of Americans that are reaching out. So I'm always super happy when there's a fellow Canadian. <laughs> yeah, no, this is great. And actually, likewise, I've, I've been appearing on quite a few American based uh, shows. And so it's nice to be on a Canadian one now. So I'm excited. Is this your first Canadian one? Or just uh, not very no, many? Yeah, it just seems to be a lot more American based ones. So yeah. Okay. Well, I alluded to the topic that you're going to tell us about next. So we're ready to hear your experience whenever you're ready to share with us. Sure. So I grew up in Alberta with uh, a dad who was a member of the RCMP. So that's the Royal Canadian Mounted Police here in Canada. And so that, along with um, what I later discovered to be my wounded inner child, led to me choosing a career in law enforcement. And so when I say wounded inner child, what I mean by that is when I was growing up, I wasn't shown love in the way that little Nick would have chose if he would have had a choice. And so didn't really feel seen or heard. And so I subconsciously chose the same career as my dad in part to be seen by my parents and to have them tell me that they were proud of me. And then even to take that another step further by putting on the uniform and going out and driving a police car, I was going to be seen and heard by the public at large too. And so uh, those are kind of the, the things that led me into policing and then combine that with, with a genuine desire to want to help people and as naive as that is and was, uh, that was my why, was to, to be there in that moment of need for people and to potentially make a difference in, in the world. And I quickly found, once I got out into the real world, that that was naive, like I said. Um, but that was, again, one of the main reasons why I started in that profession to start with. And then the other part uh, for me was... I always been drawn to adrenaline and exciting situations. And so policing definitely fulfilled that um, aspect for me as well. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So when I joined the RCMP in 2005, I was uh, 25 years old. And I thought once I got into policing, sorry, got accepted into the RCMP, I thought life is good. Like I'm living the dream from here on out. And when I got to training in Regina, Saskatchewan, which is where depot is, where all Mounties are trained, I quickly found that it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And I didn't enjoy the training as much as I thought I was going to. And then thought, well, but once I get out into the real world, like actually working as a police officer, then life will be good. And then I got out into the real world and found that that wasn't the case either. And so for me, it was... And it makes sense now looking back with hindsight, but I'm very sensitive to energies and chaos and all those things. And so choosing a career where that is where you're at every day is in that chaotic emergency, just bad energy in the sense of people are upset and terrible things have just happened to people and all that. Um, so just, it ended up being something that, I couldn't put my finger on and I didn't have any conscious awareness of this, but just being in that energy every day was just not something that I enjoyed. And then another part for me was the, the level of deception. So as a police officer, 
basically everyone lies to you. <laughs> so whether it's the person on a traffic stop trying to, you know, get themselves out of a ticket or the person you just arrested in the bar or whatever it is. I mean, of course, they're trying to get themselves out of trouble. So they're lying to you. And then in a lot of cases, even the the victim or the complainant or the person that called us, the police, uh, is trying to minimize their involvement. So they're not telling you the whole truth either. And so sorting through lies all day just really just didn't feel good to me. And again, I didn't have any conscious awareness of this at the time. I just knew that I wasn't loving life. And so what was kind of a an obvious sign for me that that was the case was my favorite days as a police officer were when either nothing would happen and we'd have a super quiet night or day and there'd be no calls or if I was on a training day and so I wasn't having to, you know, go out and arrest anyone that day. And so it's a pretty strong sign that you're not in the right job when your favorite days doing your job are when you don't have to do your job, if that makes any sense. Um, but that was, that was kind of my life. And so I pushed through because I'm stubborn, uh, at the end of the day and I signed up to, to do this job and I was committed to do it for 25 years. And so I tried some different units. So went from frontline policing into uh, drug enforcement with the RCMP. And so it was part of a, a yeah, just a small drug unit in the town I was in. And that was Sherwood Park, Alberta, which is a pretty big center just outside of Edmonton, Alberta, which is the capital of Alberta. And so um, working in the drug unit. And then what ended up happening was I met my now wife and the mother of my three amazing kids and had to start thinking about someone else's career for the first time. And in the RCMP, you, you get transferred every, you know, five to you know, seven kind of years, it's time for a physical transfer and having to think about someone else's job and where their family is and all the things led to me uh, joining actually the Calgary Police Service. So I resigned from the RCMP and then went straight into the Calgary Police. And so Calgary, for those of you that don't know, is a little bit over a million people, probably about 1.2 at that point. And so it's a fairly big city with all of the big city problems that come with modern day society and so I ended up working downtown Calgary on the street and so dealing with all of the things that a big urban center has to offer uh, with addictions and all of the the things the nightclubs and shootings and gangs and drugs and all the things that happen in a big city and then from there I got back into drug work actually now with the Calgary police service. And so I went into what was called the drug undercover street team. So I was uh, an undercover police officer in a drug unit. And my job was to basically trick people into selling me drugs. And so the, I go back to the kind of beginning there and how I said that I don't love the energies of chaos and deception and all of those things and now all of a sudden in my job that that was my job was to deceive people and to trick people and to live this sort of covert life where everything was based on a lie and so needless to say I didn't love that particular part of my of my job at all and so I was in that role for uh, about two and a half years and then found that I was just really not liking it at all. And I could feel as I was driving into work, I could feel tension come into my jaw and just felt just this sense of kind of dread almost. And so, and then I wasn't able to separate it from my home life either. So I was bringing that home too. I, I was not showing up as the best version of myself at home and was being affected by, by my job. And then to add another layer to that is I had a boss in that unit who was the worst supervisor I've ever had in, in my life. And he was in my head so deep. So I would be, I'd be going out to buy drugs from a drug dealer. And so, um, the rest of the team would be covering me. So, um, 
and while I'm in the car buying drugs, I'm unarmed and I'm yeah pretending to be just a regular person who's out to buy some drugs that day. And I was more worried about what my sergeant was going to yell at me about, about like the route I took to drive into the buy or how I drove out of the buy or any number of things. I was more worried about what he was going to yell at me about after the buy than I was about the drug dealer who I was in the car with. And so that was a really bad headspace to be in. And uh, my wife told me actually after I got out of that unit that if I would have stayed, it likely would have ended our marriage actually. And so that really hit home for me. And at this point in my life, I was really not aware of how my job was affecting me at home. So I just kept pushing through. So from there, I moved into a gang suppression team. And so now I was back in uniform and dealing with gang members in Calgary. And so uh, a lot of it was working in in bars and nightclubs and, and making sure that uh, they were safe for normal people to be in there. And so what we would do is we would remove gang members from licensed premises. And so for the first time in a long time, I actually felt like we were helping people and protecting them. And so what I mean is in drug work, you spend a ton of time in court because it's serious offenses. And when people get charged with drug trafficking, it's basically, there's no reason not to fight it because of mandatory minimum sentences here in Canada. And so spend a lot of time in court and see that system from the inside. And I just got a front row seat for how broken our justice system is. And it just really weighed on me is the fact that we were going out and dealing with these drug dealers who are, you know, hurting people, killing people on a daily basis. And we're putting ourselves on the line to, to bring them before the courts. And then those same courts just let them go, you know, two years later when it's, there's hard deadlines for how long you have to get someone before the courts and to have a trial. And if it, that's too much time expires, then they just withdraw the charges. So these guys and girls, drug dealers are walking free because it took too long to get them to trial because the system's so backed up. And so all that work and everything is just all for nothing when all the charges are just withdrawn at the end of the day anyways. So I was just really frustrated with the system and being a part of it in terms of being in the courts all the time. And so in gang suppression, we weren't having to go to court a lot because we were dealing with guys on provincial offenses. So it wasn't having to go and testify before a judge and all that. And so I really enjoyed that. And I legitimately felt like we were saving people's lives actually and preventing several murders a year because what happens in their world, in the gang world is if the wrong person sees you anywhere out and about there's going to be violence like that's just how it works so there's going to be bullets flying there's going to be a stabbing there's going to be all sorts of crazy things happening and when that happens in a bar with lots of other people around it's just a recipe for someone that's not involved to get hurt by a stray bullet or by any number of ways and so by removing them from these bars then everyone else that was still there was a lot safer and so felt value in that and um, pushed through that role for, it was about four years. So at this point, I was about 15 years into my policing career and had about 10 years left to go before I could retire. And that's when things all started to unravel for me. So in early December, or sorry, in early 2020, so in January, uh, my wife and I started to make some lifestyle changes and what that looked like was a diet change. So a, we did a gut reset and then also started meditating. And then for me, I'd also rediscovered cannabis, ironically. So about a year before that, cannabis became legal in Canada. And so I had I had used cannabis when I was... I'd, you know, late teens and uh, before I decided to be a police officer and um, actually had found that I preferred it to alcohol. 
Uh, but anyways, when I decided I wanted to be a police officer, obviously you can't be doing anything criminal. And at that point, cannabis was criminal. And so had stopped uh, long before I joined policing. And so when it became legal again, I kind of rediscovered it and found quickly that I had actually developed a really unhealthy relationship with alcohol. And um, so that was actually one thing that I, I cut out right around that same time frame was alcohol. And so now my life really started to, uh, my former life started to unravel at that point. And so I was really feeling the effects of the, some unresolved traumas that I'd collected throughout my career. And so those hard calls that I went to that I never had the time or space or desire or skills to unpack and to actually process were just starting to, starting to, fill me up, I guess, and starting to affect me in my day to day life, in the way I was showing up my mood, my level of patience, my overall just, again, how I was showing up in the world. And then my sleep was really was really being affected. So in the gang suppression unit that I was working in, we would work four 12 hour night shifts in a row. And I was just getting to the point where I wasn't able to really sleep more than a few hours in between my night shifts. And so by the end of four night shifts, 12 hour night shifts, I was just a mess and wasn't good at work, wasn't good at home. It would take me several days to even feel human again after that. And I, I'm quite aware that they say that shift work kills you or takes years off your life. Sorry. Um, and I was at a point where I could literally feel that. And so for the first time in my life, I admitted that something wasn't right. And I went to my doctor and told him what was going on. And what happened from that was a doctor's note restricting my hours to midnight, which in policing is a little bit, as you can imagine, career limiting because of the nature of the work. So I just, I was not feeling good. And so I just put that note in not knowing what was, what it was going to happen to me or what that was going to mean for my career, but just letting go of control basically. So I did that and what ended up happening was they put me in um, a role called the public affairs and media relations unit. And so now I was working behind the scenes in the social media kind of department for the Calgary police service. So answering people's questions and posting, you know, wanted posters and different things that were going on in the police world, putting that out on social media for the public. And so this was now into uh, the spring of 2020. And so lockdowns and everything that was going on in the world at that point um, was happening full force. And so I ended up working from home actually on a laptop and Tuesday to Friday and no night shifts and no weekends. And I thought life was good. And I thought that I had it made at this point. And I had about 10 years left in my career. I thought, oh, I can coast through 10 years, no problem. And then at the end of June of 2020, um, an event happened in the US and that was uh, where a police officer murdered George Floyd in Minneapolis. And all of a sudden my kind of cushy online gig became just the worst place to be ever. The negativity of the the sentiment towards police during that that summer of 2020 with the defund the police and all the things that were happening there was just it was really really dark and especially in the online world where you have the keyboard warriors the the people saying things that they would never actually say to your face but they feel empowered to to do that behind the you know cover of anonymity on the internet and so that position just became yeah, just really dark. And I honestly would have rather been buying drugs in a back alley from some drug dealer or dealing with gang members in a bar than dealing with that online world during that summer. But I, uh, that was my job. So I pushed through again. And then in September of that same year, 2020, so about nine months after the, the diet change and the, the meditation and the actually cannabis that I explained, um, I came into my workday, opened my laptop and saw that there was a bunch of messages that had come in from a young lady overnight. 
and they were uh, basically a cry for help. So she was she was suicidal, and I, for the first time in my career and in my life, my world just came crashing in on me. And what happened in that moment was my cup just filled up. So all those traumas and hard calls and different things that I'd been exposed to throughout my career in policing, unresolved, of course, because I would never let myself think about them again. It just filled me up. And I went into this kind of catatonic, weird state where I couldn't act or do anything. I was just staring blankly at the computer screen. And I don't know how long that lasted for. Uh, because I I only was brought out of it when my wife came into the room and she saw that something was obviously up with me. And so she was able to snap me out of it. And I just, uh, I knew that something wasn't right because of what I just experienced. That was something very unusual for me. And so I went and called my supervisor, who was a civilian lady who was running that unit that I was working in. And she answered the phone and I just broke down crying for the first time as an adult, just uncontrollably sobbing. And I had no idea what was happening to me, uh, but I knew that something was up. And so I just committed to myself that I was going to actually deal with whatever the unresolved traumas were that were affecting me. And I wasn't going to go back to work until I had. And so I set off on a journey to heal myself of these traumas that I'd collected and uh, just went all in on it, not knowing what the heck that was going to look like for me. So what it ended up looking like was endless psychological appointments with various psychologists and different trauma um counseling methods from exposure therapies to just more traditional talk therapies to the eye movement. So uh, EMDR. And I was just doing all of it in the hopes that someone could help me and get me back to myself. But uh, I wasn't, yeah, after a year and a half of those traditional therapies, I just, I wasn't getting any better. And in fact, I was actually I felt like I was getting worse and was actually in a real low point with my mental health. And so I had a, uh, intuitive knowing in about a year after my, my breakthrough. So the, the day that my, uh, my world came crashing in on me there. So in the moment, it definitely looked like a breakdown, but with a little bit of hindsight, I've come to realize that it was a breakthrough and, one of the best things that's happened to me in my life because it forced me to actually deal with my stuff. So again, about a year after that, I knew that I wasn't interested in any sort of a pharmaceutical. So at every doctor's appointment, they'd be offering me different, you know, sleeping pills and different antidepressants. And I was just not interested in anything pharmaceutical based, but I came to know that there was going to be something in plant medicines for me. And so Around that time, about a year into my healing journey, I just not really knowing what I was going to do with these things, I just decided to grow my own mushrooms. And so like any good drug cop would do, I went on the internet and found a, a grow kit that I could order online. And so that's what I did. So I brought these things home. And at this point, my spiritual journey, awakening, whatever you want to call it, was really was really happening uh, in full force. And so I got this mushroom kit and I grew the mushrooms on a sacred geometry clearing plate. And I was doing Reiki on them regularly, just setting the intention that I was going to use these things in some way to, to help myself and to heal the, the traumas that I had that were affecting me in my day-to-day -day life. And so, um, I didn't know what I was going to do with them until about December of 2021. And that was the ultimate low point for me on this journey. And in terms of my mental health, I just finished, uh, it was called the return to work program through WCB and the ladies involved in that program, a psychologist and an occupational therapist, uh, ended up traumatizing me more than basically anything I'd experienced in policing and just trying to force me back to a job that I knew was not, uh, was not it was not a good time for me to go back into policing just with the, the where I was at with my mental health at that point. And so with my back up against the wall and really being forced by WCB to, to go back to work, 
I one day just knew that there was going to be again, something in the, that plant medicine world for me. And so I just Googled a shaman psychologist and I found one and she happened to be in Calgary. And so I called her up in that moment. And after some back and forth, we arranged a healing journey for January 28th of 2022. And so um, she did as a, she's a PhD psychologist. So she did all the standard testing on me through the DSM and all that. And I came back as uh, diagnosed with PTSD and I was on the severe side, whatever that means. And then um, so then into Jan later January was a healing journey. And so what that looked like was it very much a, a spiritual um, ceremony, basically. And that was something that I was really missing in my traditional therapies up until that point was any sort of energetic component or spiritual component. It was all dealing with my, you know, my mental health, like, a, and my body, like a machine in a way. And I was really missing that spiritual element. So now with this shaman psychologist, I, I had all of the spiritual aspects that I'd been missing in, yeah, in excess at this point. So there was, you know, drumming involved and calling in of protection from angels, unicorns, fairies, dragons, like it was next level. And then, so I brought the medicine that I grew with the intention to heal me. And when I say medicine, I mean that very, very sincerely, because these plants, so psilocybin in this case, magic mushrooms, is a medicine that used, when used intentionally, and in the right way, in the right set, in the right setting, all of those things, is a powerful healing force. And so I held that medicine to my heart, and I read my intentions for that journey. And that was to, to finally process these traumas that were affecting me and these calls that I just couldn't, I, I was regurgitating them to therapists and psychologists and talking about them, but that was it. I wasn't actually processing them. I was just regurgitating my trauma is kind of how I look at it now. And so I, um, yeah, took that medicine and without any resistance, without thinking about it or fighting it or any of that, I just went back chronologically to my first hard call back in my early days in the RCMP. And it was, it was a suicide. And so not, not a coincidentally at all, a lot of my hard calls that I wouldn't go back to, or would never let myself think about were suicide related. And then of course the, the one that put me over and filled up my cup was another suicide related call. So no coincidence at all. So I just went back to that, that early days in my RCMP career. And I was able to, for the first time since that day, actually go back in my mind and relive some of those experiences that, that I went through. And I was able to see it from a different perspective. And that was that I was a witness to someone else's trauma story and in this case, the end of her trauma story and just what I can only now describe as radical Jesus level compassion for her and what her life must have looked like and all of the terrible things she must have experienced to get her to that point to, to want to kill herself. And then I also had that same level of compassion for myself in that I was doing that job and was there that day to try and help people. And so in that, with that perspective change and then that compassion, it just processed, it just moved through me and I was able to, to then go on to the next one. So I worked through my whole, up to that point, it was about 15 years. So my whole policing career chronologically from one hard call to the next and just worked through them all and came out a few hours later and um, it wasn't like a like a switch had been flipped and I was like you know good the next day it took some time but there was definitely I noticed things felt I just felt different after a couple of days and then it just sort of built some momentum for me in feeling better and so um, on January 28th so that was the day of my healing journey that was actually my wife and I's 10 year wedding anniversary, which no coincidence. 
and then also at that time the the freedom convoy in Canada the trucker convoy was on their way across Canada to Ottawa to protest the government the mandates and whatnot and all the things that that were happening in Canada um, during that time and so for me personally I joined policing to not only help people but to protect people's rights and so what I saw was our government trampling people's rights and so for the first time in a long time I was feeling hope for the future watching these truckers drive across Canada and seeing the support on these bridges and just realizing that oh man I'm not the only one that's feeling this way and so it was really it was a, it was a good time in terms of that feeling of hope and then about a week later after my healing journey that hope kind of turned in a big way and so that was when I saw images coming back from Ottawa and how the police were dealing with the protesters there and the the peaceful protesters there who are just doing what they're allowed to do under the charter and that's to peace, peacefully assemble and to protest and all those things that are guaranteed in our Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and I saw the police stealing fuel from these truckers and it's February in Ottawa, winter time, it's miserably cold. And yeah, the police are stealing fuel from these guys and girls. And for me, it was just like a line in the sand had been crossed where I felt as a police officer that we were here to protect people's rights. And now all of a sudden we were being used by the government to trample people's rights. And it just didn't sit well with me at all. And so I recorded a, a video kind of message that I'd written out in my journal. And I meant it for other police officers, uh, just to really think about what they were doing in terms of that, that, you know, squashing people's rights. Um, and I posted it to a group chat I was a part of that was other like-minded police officers. And I didn't really think too much of it, but it ended up getting shared outside of that group and kind of took off on a life of its own. And that was a week after my healing journey. And it was just interesting to look at the timeline now to see how even that short after my healing that I was feeling empowered to speak my truth for the first time in my life. And um, you can imagine that the Calgary Police Service weren't very happy with me uh, speaking out publicly. And so I received yeah, several phone calls from them and a registered letter ordering me not to speak publicly anymore. And so now is being silenced by my position, which didn't feel good at all. And so about I was about a month after that point, uh, WCB sent me to an independent psychologist and they did uh, it was a half day of testing and interviews and all the things. And they WCB and uh, they had no idea that I'd done this healing journey. It was something that I had to organize on my own. And it's still, well, to this day, is still illegal in Canada. So psilocybin, magic mushrooms, are, are still a Schedule 1 drug. And what that means is that they have, the definition of a Schedule 1 drug is that they have no therapeutic or medical benefit and have a high likelihood of addiction, which is just lies on both fronts like it's just not true <laughs> at all and so um i they didn't know what i that i'd done this healing journey but i went to this independent psychologist had a independent assessment and so that psychologist called me back a week later and told me that i didn't meet the criteria for a diagnosis anymore so i had went from severe ptsd before my healing journey and now about a month, six weeks later, I no longer met the criteria for a diagnosis. So the evidence is abundantly clear to me that this medicine and for me, psilocybin is just has so much potential to help so many people and not just police officers or first responders, but all of us, we all have varying degrees of trauma and it's just an amazing tool to let you access these traumas and to process them in a way that they won't affect you in your day-to-day -day life anymore. And so I, since that day, I um, have just felt really called to share my story in the hopes that it can inspire someone out there to, to take their own healing journey and to let them know that there are options outside of traditional therapies and that uh, there's hope basically. And so 
um, in that moment, my, so now I didn't have a diagnosis. So my benefits stopped and the Calgary police service were of course expecting me back to work. And, um, that was just not in the cards for me or my family. And that was because my own mental health. So I was feeling good, of course, but if I were to go back into policing and be back in those negative situations, I felt like I would just have been re-traumatizing myself. And then also I just had really come out of alignment with policing, watching what had happened in Ottawa with the freedom convoy and with the, how the government enacted the emergencies act to deal with peaceful protesters. Um, and then even in Calgary, there was an injunction against peaceful protests. And so, which made it, uh, made, gave the police powers to arrest people who were committing bylaw infractions. So normally, let's say if you were jaywalking, you'd get a ticket, right? If you were caught, uh, this injunction against the peaceful protesters made it possible for the police to arrest you, physically arrest you and take you to jail for committing a bylaw offense. And so that just sat in a very bad way with me. And I was not going to be a part of any of that. My own integrity and my own ethics and morals were just like, I've joined this job to help people and to protect people. And I'm not going to be part of that. And so uh, with the amazing support of my family, I made the only decision that made sense for us. And that was for me to resign from policing. And so that's what I did and set off on uh, yeah, new course in my life for sure. So yeah, that's, uh, that's my story. <laughs> wow. I, well, a couple things, Nick, or multiple things, maybe. Um, firstly, thank you for all of the service that you did do for those, was it 17 years? If my math is right, somewhere in there. Yeah. 17, 17 years. So thank you for that because it's obviously, as you've described, not an easy role, but unfortunately a necessary role right now in and everywhere in the world. And I also want to know, Nick, are you comfortable to break down your story? Yeah, absolutely. So the very first question that came to mind, because I don't know if you're aware, Nick, but I work frontline with the unhoused population in Ontario. Okay. And and so I my role technically is a housing worker, so I obviously work to try to house the unhoused. Yeah. But then following housing first principles, house them first and then work through mental health and trauma and addiction and legal involvement and all of that. So I guess I was kind of on the other side of you yeah. in that term. But I've always wondered how, like how, if at all, police get support with mental health and trauma because everything that they deal with, like you mentioned, just builds and builds and builds until it eventually can't build anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's definitely trending in the right direction in terms of those supports available and the the stigma and all that of, of accessing those supports. It is getting better, but there's still a lot of work to do. And unfortunately, just the nature of the work and where society's at, it's just, it's so busy. Like the guys and girls on the front line in uniform, in policing are just going from call to call to call dealing with yeah all sorts of different things and are there's just not the time to to actually deal with the emotional side or the energetic side or the trauma side of it and on bigger calls they there is you know debriefs and different things but it's more and again i've been out of it for a few couple years now but um and so things could be could be even better than this but when i was still in it was like the debrief was more focused on tactics and like what you could have done better or more safely or any of those sort of things rather than actually like dealing with the human side and processing the trauma and what you've just experienced and witnessed and all of that and so um, those, the supports are available, but you, you definitely have to reach out for them and you have to, as the individual officer, make that kind of happen for yourself. And then for me, the, the things that were being offered were, were very traditional therapies. And again, this was just for me, but I didn't find that those were, were they didn't help me in the same way that, um, some of these other alternative um, things that I ended up using at the end of the day 
they were far more effective for me personally. But uh, to answer your question, yes, it's trending in the right direction, but there's still a lot of work to do. Absolutely. And I guess on the other side of that, Nick, is there is there supports or trainings that officers and just emergency personnel are provided in supporting people that are always in crisis? Because from my experience as a frontline, I feel like, and again, this is Ontario-based, so it might be a little different than where you are, but I often feel that officers, I guess for lack of a better way of saying it, just makes the situation worse. Yeah. And the ones in Ontario right now, they're often, specifically in London, but they, they're often called to, you know, the suicide um, attempts and the addictions and somebody being very unwell from addiction, mental health. But I often find that it just gets so much more escalated and it's almost like they struggle to speak with those in crisis. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, of course, but for me, it was a process where you, you have to de dehumanize people in a way in order to just get through it because the things that you see and, and all that. And I mean, you'd be very aware of this is like, it's, it's tough to see people in those really low places. And so uh, what I would do is just uh, in a way, and this sounds kind of terrible, but like think of them as, and again, this sounds terrible, but is less than human. And that is not a good it's not a good thing at all. And I'm not saying that, but I'm just kind of giving you perspective on that's just how I would personally get through it and would be able to, I guess, rationalize some of the things that I was seeing and experiencing um, was thinking of, of those people, not as people. And, um, and then that just leads to when you're thinking of them that way, then that's how you're coming across and that's how you're speaking and treating them. And it's certainly not a good thing, but that was kind of how, how I got through it. If that makes any sense. No, it totally does. Is that how the police kind of trained you or is that just how you were able to yourself get through all of those calls? No, that was myself just kind of a, a misguided, um, unhelpful coping strategy, basically. Um, and actually when I say unhelpful, I I shouldn't say that because it did, it did get me through the day to day, but it wasn't in a healthy way. Right. And things were just piling up and being pushed to another day to deal with, which is what exactly happened to me. So that was just something that I I don't know, I guess I came up with. And I'm thinking that a lot of guys and girls in law enforcement do something similar, um, just to, again, get through that, uh, those hard days. And is there actual supports or trainings or anything of the like, when you're actually in, like, is it police college or whatever the training is that police and emergency personnel get? Is there actually, like, trainings and information sessions and stuff on traumas and mental health and addiction? There, there is. Um, and it, I mean, I go back to like when I was at Depot was, was 2005, 2006. So, um, I'm guessing things have changed a lot since then. And that Depot is like the police college for lack of better term for the RCMP. And then in Alberta, like with Calgary police, they do their own internal training, but, um, there would be definitely sessions on that. And again, it, it is, seems to be going in the right direction, but there's still, still a lot of work to be done. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad that they're actually doing some of the trainings because I've had some very mm, unfortunate, maybe is the right word, um, experiences with police trying to support some of the clients that I work with. So I'm glad it's in the right direction. That's kind of what I was seeking to hear. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's it's tough, right? Like it's it's certainly not something that's going to get fixed overnight and it's going to take yeah, a lot of effort and and time to uh to get that mind shift to change and to introduce some of those concepts on like trauma informed how to deal with people and and different things. Mm-hmm. Um 
but um, yeah, again, and and I uh, I just think there's so much potential to to get us there with well psychedelics for num for one for people that are called, and then there's other things too. Like there's uh, I feel like breath work could be so helpful for first responders, and it's part of kind of my mission going forward is to to figure out ways to get some healing into that space, and then to then those officers can show up uh, at those calls dealing with, with the marginalized populations and show up in a lot better way because they're not dealing with their own, the, the traumas that have piled up within them. So it's definitely something I'm, I'm interested in, in pursuing in the future for sure and, and helping, helping people in any way I can. Well, you definitely just took the question I was about to ask right out of my mouth because I was going to ask if you had ever considered trying to do maybe behind the scenes work and more training and healing of officers, but you just touched on that. So, <laughs> which is yeah. incredible though. And obviously it's needed everywhere. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, it really is. It, um, it's just something that we need well across society right is just healing we need to deal with our stuff our our traumas and in a lot of cases it might not even be ours right it could be generational stuff that was just passed down to us and if we don't heal whatever it is that's um, affecting us then we either we pass that on to our kids and we give them then the responsibility to either heal it or not and then pass it on to the next generation and then it just keeps going but when we take ownership of our own stuff and heal it in this lifetime, then it stops with us and then it doesn't get passed on and the world becomes a lot better place. And so, yeah, very called to, to help in any way that I can. And um, to that end, I've started uh, my own shamanism training. So I, yeah, I just feel really deeply um, passionate about about giving back in some way. And so, um, yeah, doing the shamanism training and then learning how to facilitate breath work um, and where you can process a ton of stuff in a, you know, in an hour breath work session. And so, and then combining the shamanism, the energy healing with breath work and uh, finding ways to, to get that out to people. So that's definitely a big part of, of what I'm doing here moving forward. Well, I hope we can stay connected, Nick, because that sounds incredible. And I'm totally on board to do those sessions. So let me know whenever you're trained. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. I'll be a guinea pig. <laughs> awesome. No, it's it's very profound for sure. And it's uh, actually through breathwork specifically. So um, I've been able to have some experiences in breathwork sessions that were as intense as a six plus gram mushroom journey. And it's literally with just your breath. It's, yeah, it's wild. Has, again, ton of potential to help people. So really excited about pushing that out and getting, uh, getting some healing out to people. Can we touch on how the mushrooms, I guess for lack of a better word, worked? Yeah. Like how, because you mentioned that they're still illegal. Yeah. What's, what's the process for one to do that? And is it that you use or consume the mushroom and then you talk about the traumas? Like, can you dig into that a bit more? Yeah. Those are all questions that I definitely had going into my healing journey too. So um, I thought that there was going to be a lot of talking through things and the, the psychologist shaman was going to be, you know, talking me through all of these hard things. But for me, that wasn't how it worked at all. It was, I, so I had those clear intentions, like I mentioned. And then um, once I felt the effects of the medicine, I just went with what felt good to me. And that was to, to go into this bedroom of the place we were staying at. And I actually went right underneath the, the covers, which is interesting to think about now because I, I now know a lot more about it than I did at that point. But uh, blocking out your visual inputs is actually a really key component when you're doing psychedelic kind of like healing sort of uh, work. And so I just did that naturally. And it just, so it changes your, your state of consciousness. And so it gets rid of all your, your ego and all of the beliefs and your patterns and all the stuff you have built up 
in your mind that every all your new inputs and all your experiences have to go through all of those those layers it just gets rid of all of that and you're just kind of wide open your subconscious is wide open and you're just in a different state to be able to to go to places that you normally wouldn't and so for me i would before my healing session or journey i would think about a you know a hard call and it would be reminded by a smell or a location or in any other number of ways and i would think about it briefly and i'd be reminded of it and i would kind of go there and then i would immediately be like no like i am not thinking about this one today i'm not dealing with this and i would just push it back down and so what i was doing was giving it energy i was putting my own life force energy into like pushing it down and it just wasn't yeah, just not a, a good thing to do and not a, a sustainable um, coping strategy at all at the end of the day. And so the medicine just allowed me to, without any sort of thought or any sort of resistance, just go to those places that normally would have walls built up around them and just like an army trying to fight off touching those events again. And so those yeah that those all those factors i just described just allows you to go in and just just go through them and i didn't need the the talking part actually i just i was doing it all in my mind in like re-going back to those scenes and processing them the psychologist was of course coming in regularly and checking on me but i was good i was just going through it and just doing my own thing and working just through those hard calls one by one right through my whole career. So uh, that was my experience. I, I can't say what, if that's the same for everyone, but um, that was my story. So correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, but it kind of sounds like you consume the mushroom, kind of cover your eyes and have yeah. no visuals. And then it almost sounds like a dreamlike state where you're going through past experiences kind of in a dream like way. Is that right? I would, I would say partially, yes, for sure. Definitely different than than a dream, like just the way your your body feels and your the way your thoughts feel. It's just it's really actually hard to put them into words. Um, that's something that is very common in psychedelic experiences. Is just the it's really really hard to describe it. And language does not do it justice. Um, but it just puts you in a different state, and then with my intention to want to go in and actually process this stuff it just did exactly what i asked it to do they're called magic mushrooms i think for a reason and that's because they are exactly that and when you do it in the right intent with the right intention and in the right situation they will do whatever you ask them to do without having to think about it or do anything forcefully you know and for me on the outside of that healing journey. Now all that energy I was putting into pushing down stuff, I've liberated and I can use that for good in my life. And so I just feel, it just feels different. It just feels a lot lighter and um, yeah, just better. Absolutely. I think the word for dreamlike that I was thinking of was almost like hypnosis, like a hypnotic state. Is that closer or still not quite there? I, yeah, it's still, I wouldn't say that it's just, it's just a very different state of consciousness that is definitely not your normal waking state. It's definitely more dreamlike for sure than it is your waking state, but it's, yeah, there's a lot going on that, that again, language just can't touch. So I know I'm not doing a very good job of explaining it. Sorry about that. I think, I think you have explained it in a way that makes sense to us that I I just can't maybe understand how it feels because I've never done them. Right. So I think you've done it justice. It just, I'm trying to understand it deeper because that's what I do. <laughs> yeah. 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 Unfortunately, it's just, it's one of those things that you kind of have to experience in order to understand. It's, uh, it's something I, I'm not going to be able to explain it and do it justice here. And how does one at least in Canada where they're illegal, how does one get their hands on them? Yeah. So, I mean, there is ways to uh, ask for an exemption through Health Canada um, and work through the red tape that would be involved there to do it um, legally or sorry, legally. Um, but I 
I just wasn't willing to, you know, put my healing and my life in the hands of some bureaucrat red tape government employee that may or may not approve my healing journey, you know, today or might be six months or two years or whatever. I just wasn't willing to do that. And so for me, I just took matters into my own hands. And just like I said, I ordered a, a kit off from online. And so when you when you receive the kit, it's actually not illegal at this point because it's what it is is just inoculated grain. So it has the spores, the mushroom spores in grain, and then you mix it together with a substrate and you've got to create the perfect environment for it to grow. But so it's actually not illegal until the mushroom actually fruits. So when the mushroom itself comes up out of the, out of the substrate, then at that point it's a controlled substance. So it's kind of like, it's a legal gray area, I would say. And then um, it was just a risk. I knew that the, I knew there was risks involved, of course, because yeah, it's still a schedule one controlled substance under the CDSA in Canada, but I was willing to take that risk in the, to, to forward or further my own healing, I guess. And so I just prioritize my healing over, you know, a silly law <laughs> that doesn't make sense. And so, and where we're at with psilocybin in, in Canada is it is kind of a, it's a little bit of a gray area and it's like, so about, you know, five, seven years before cannabis was legalized in Canada, it, was in that same state. And so it's kind of like the writings on the wall, it's going to become legal. And so there's just really low investigational appetite for investigating um, psilocybin related, you know, drug that world. And it was the same thing with with cannabis back in the day. And so at that point, back in before cannabis was made legal, they shut down all the marijuana grow investigational teams. And there was just no, yeah, no, no one was interested in uh, enforcing cannabis laws. And so we're kind of at that same point with psilocybin now. So again, I, it is still illegal for sure. And there is risks involved, but it's, it's not something that the police are, you know, actively going out and, trying to find people doing healing journeys, trying to heal their traumas uh, and bust them up, you know, like that's not, this is not how it's working right now. There's just a lot more bigger things that the police are worrying about or trying to, trying to. Yeah, exactly. I have one more kind of burning question for you, Nick. Okay. And (laughs) no pressure, but I'm just curious because you kind of alluded that your childhood wasn't great and you didn't feel as loved and supported as little you would want. Yeah. And you mentioned that you have, I think three sons. I do. Yep. How have you changed kind of your parenting style to avoid mimicking what your parents did? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. Um, so I think an awareness for sure. Number one, that I want to do things differently and I don't have any judgment or any sort of hard feelings towards my parents. They were just doing the best that they knew how and with the tools and resources and all the things that they had. So for me, I ended up with two parents that were raised the same way. So, and raised by traumatized people, right? Like you go back to like our, my grandparents' generation, they, they grew up in Nazi occupied Holland during World War II. And so it's like, yeah, they have unbelievable traumas that were just never addressed. And so they passed on those traumas to my parents who then didn't deal with them, which again, no judgment. They just, just the tools weren't available and the times were different. And so they then raised me in that same way. And so I have a keen awareness that that's something that I don't want to pass on to my kids. And so uh, I've just made, yeah, a lot of, changes in terms of how how I discipline my kids is just very different than how I was and just trying to trying to just show up in a way that I would have appreciated as as a young person and don't get me wrong I have I have bad days and I say things and you know because parenting is hard it's a super hard job and so I totally get it like and I still have my moments where I say things that aren't very healed and that are possibly traumatizing my kids. So I'm definitely not saying I'm perfect, but 
I'm working on it and it's, it's a work in progress and it's something that, that, yeah, the work continues for sure with, um, with breath work and with meditation and with all of the the things I'm doing to, to try and stop that generational trauma from getting passed through me and on into my kids. So, um, those are some of the things that, that I'm doing to, to change that, the, the story for, for my family. Do your kids ever watch you doing the breath work or the meditation or like the actual work? Yeah, absolutely. And then I do, I do energy work on my kids almost daily. Um, and we, you know, bless our food and, uh, all sorts of funky things that, uh, yeah, they're very much right there front and center with the, with the, their eyeballs on all this stuff that we're doing. Absolutely. So I think that even alone partnered with your awareness is huge for the kids because they're seeing all the different changes. And when they become teenagers or young adults, they're going to look back and say, you know, mom and dad did this and this. And you might look back and say, oh, mom and dad, you know, yelled and screamed or whatever it was, whereas your kids aren't going to be able to say the similar things just from what they're watching. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's really important, right? Because we can tell kids what they need to do or say or how to be but what's more important is to show them right with your own actions and then another piece for me is is just apologizing to them when I know I have not shown up in the best way or said that thing in that triggered moment or whatever it is is to then go and be like listen bud sorry about that daddy's not having a good day and to kind of own it because that was definitely something that I never experienced as a as a child was that um that that piece of kind of owning when you when you messed up so that's something that that we definitely um are conscious of and 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 make sure that our kids know that we're just human and doing our best and we sometimes uh sometimes aren't perfect but uh none of us are that's amazing i'm very happy to hear uh given your experience that you are working on those generational cycles that are being changed within you for your children. And Nick, I wanted to thank you for being a guest and sharing your story and your experience and your insights. I know I definitely learned a lot and I've definitely had a lot of questions about policing and mushrooms and just all of the things that we talked about. Um, Because I find that it's not really conversations that a lot of people have. And a lot of people aren't open to really asking officers or former officers or retired officers, whatever the case is, some of these burning questions on how they're actually trained and everything that comes with that. So I thank you for answering all of those questions. And I'm just wondering, Nick, is there anywhere that listeners and myself can continue to follow you on socials or websites or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, on the outside of my my policing career, I've uh, transitioned into um, consciously made clothing. So I've went from, yeah, definitely to another another aspect that I've never explored. And so, um, yeah, I have an apparel brand that's made here in Canada. So everything's sewn in Calgary, Alberta, and it's made from hemp and organic cotton. And it's just, it's just better. Nature, when it's touching our skin, nature's just the best. And so um, people can find me through my website, which is flowstatedesigns.ca and um, on Instagram and TikTok and all the places under uh, Flow State Designs. And uh, I can I sent you the, the links for all of my uh, social media if people are interested in following me there. And um, yeah, those are kind of the best places. Is I think Instagram and TikTok are kind of the ones I'm most active on. And is this apparel men's only or is it? Like women and men's or unisex. Yeah. So it is, it is unisex. I designed it for men uh, specifically. So we have a men's t-shirt so far. So long and short sleeve t-shirt. And I am currently working on a woman's specific pattern. So it just, it takes time. I'm, uh, I'm very much in the slow fashion business. So I (laughs) very much the opposite of that fast fashion model and everything's very intentional and, um, you know, thinking about the the fabrics and the impact that they have and the way that they're grown and thinking about the impacts of where it's sewn. And um, I just wasn't interested in having my stuff made in, in some, in a third world country where the conditions are just terrible. And so, yeah, very, every 
part of it is very intentional right down to the tags. I, I have them made in Canada by the last Canadian um, tag maker actually. And so um, just very different than the, you know, fast fashion model that we've become so used to. Incredible. And Nick, when I ask this question, I'm wondering what comes to the forefront of your mind. Is there any final kind of thoughts on healing or words of wisdom or support or encouragement for anybody listening? I would just say that there are, there are options and there are there's tools and resources and information out there available. And I would just say that if you're in a position where you know, you're being affected by, by your stuff and you know that, um, yeah, it's trending kind of in, in a bad direction is to just take kind of the bulls by the horn and, and don't let it get to that point where you're having a full breakdown. And again, it was a breakthrough for me, but, and that was necessary. I needed that in order to deal with my stuff. Uh, but I would just say, just, just start, like open your mind to maybe trying a breathwork session or talking to a friend about whatever's bothering you or yeah, seeking out a psychologist. Cause I'm not saying that traditional therapies don't have a place because they do for sure. I would just say just, yeah, there's options and just, just start because it's, if we don't heal this stuff, then we're passing that on to, to the next generation. And uh, what we need is, is more healed individuals in this world. And when that happens, the collective consciousness just continues to rise and the world just becomes a better place. So I would just say, get started. And for me, my sort of motto is to, I just try and be the light that I want to see in the world. So not get too wrapped up in what's happening externally, you know, overseas and with all the craziness and various places in the world and just focus on, on being the best version of yourself. And that's all you can do at the end of the day. And that has an amazing ripple effect. So when you're showing up as the, as that high vibrational, highest version of yourself, it affects tens of thousands of individuals throughout the planet so i would just say get started and there's there is amazing tools out there and and i'm always here too if people want to reach out and chat or get some more information i'm uh, very much an open book and very willing to share amazing well thank you again nick for again the years of service that you put in on the police forces and rcmp as well as being a guest i I, again, I know I already said this, but I definitely learned a lot from you and I'm thankful for that. I think the only way we can learn and continue to raise that awareness is through these conversations. So I applaud you for that and just thank you for sharing your story and continuing the conversations. Great. No, and thank you very much for giving me this platform to share my story and podcasting in particular i have a real deep love for and it's because it it really saved us in the past few years it's been the only place where we can still get unfiltered unvetted uncensored information and so thank you for for being a part of that and and just putting out information for people and letting them decide what's for them or not absolutely that's what this space is all about <laughs> And to you, Nick, and to the listeners, I'm sending you both lots of love and lots of light. Great. Thank you very much.